today, I am dogless. So it should be a little quieter and I can take a different route. Maybe will not leave me so breathless as usual. Today I want to answer some questions that we commonly get as missionaries. First one, we've been asked both here in Japan and in the States, is you know, how do we make a living? How do we get our our money? How do we make make uh, where do the finances come from for our family to live in Japan? And there are different uh, ways that different mission organizations and different missionaries do it, but here's the way that we do. We uh, were appointed as missionaries, sent by our home church, and joined a mission board in 1998. We spent the next four and a half years visiting something like 200 churches. At each church, we would share with them who we were, our home church, and share with them the need in Japan for workers, for missionaries, for pastors, for uh, Christian workers of all kinds. And in doing that, we would answer questions, and quite often we taught Sunday school. Uh, I would preach. Um, we might speak to a, a men's group or high school group. Whatever the church needed, we went with the, the desire to serve the church, to encourage the church, um, to think more about missions, not just overseas, not just in Japan, but also in their community. So one of my themes in Prefield was thinking about Moses and the rod that he had was something that he had as a shepherd uh, to take care of his flock. But when he began to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, God used that rod, that staff, and from there on it was called the rod of God. So it was his tool as a shepherd. That's what he brought into this equation. And then God used it and became God's tool. So I really challenge people and continue to do so, challenge people that you've been given gifts by God and you have an opportunity to use them for him, for his glory. When God um, uses you and uses your gifts, you have spiritual fruit that comes from that. So that was one of our themes on Prefield and we enjoyed all the different churches, people we met. Our personal philosophy was that we wouldn't mention money unless the church brought it up. We assumed that most people understand that uh, any kind of missionary endeavor requires some degree of finances, and we were no different. I would say close to a third of the churches that we went to never brought it up. They didn't ask us anything about finances. They didn't mention anything. We went. We enjoyed our fellowship time with them, encouraged them, and left, and nothing more was said. And that was fine with us. But the majority of the churches did ask 
Uh, how is your support? Um, how are your finances? Uh, how can we pray for you? And many of them ask how could they could help. Those churches end up being mm, a few less than 40, I think, 37, 38 churches. Ended up partnering with us in our home church and provided our full finances to go to Japan after four and a half years. And most of those churches have stayed with us for the last 20 plus years. In addition to currently, I think we have 35 or 36 supporting churches. We also have around 20 or so individuals who have supported us over the years. So how do we stay in Japan? How do we live? Uh, we have partnered with people, churches, and individuals who, as we do, see that there's a need for people in Japan who are committed to seeing the gospel at least available, uh, to see Bible teaching, to see churches started, encouraged, to see leaders built up, trained, and that's what we've been attempting to do for the last 20 years. <clears throat> Another question I've been asked several times over the years, how do you meet people? You know, what do you do to build contacts and uh, have opportunities to share the gospel? For me personally, I came to Japan with a conviction that I really need to spend time with men. really wanted to try to reach out to men as much as possible. So I evaluated kind of what has been done, what is being done, and took some of that and then added my personality and my gifts and my interests to develop my own unique way of doing ministry. Even in, pre in uh, even in language school, I started looking at clubs I could join that were primarily made up of men. So in language school, I joined a remote control airplane club. to being made up of uh, made up 100% of Japanese men um, had added benefit that none of them spoke English so as I'm trying to learn Japanese and be able to communicate in this language uh, I was around a group of people every week who didn't speak English and trying to communicate uh, how to learn to fly this airplane and uh, build these relationships so that was the first thing that I did.
down the road, one of the things that I did that was similar, kind of branched off from that remote control idea, or uh, from the airplane idea at least, was to race remote control cars. And I had done this a little bit in the States before we arrived in Japan and realized that it was a great activity for building relationships. And remote control cars, if you've never been to a track or seen how they do it, a race is like five to seven minutes long. And if there are enough people, you primarily uh, do your five, seven minute race, go back to your station, prepare your car for the next race, and then you have opportunities just to sit around and talk to people. So it ended up being great for building relationships. And I realized this in the States on pre-field as I first went to a track and learned something about it. And then once I got to Japan, I realized, hey, it's exactly the same. Here's a group of people, primarily men, who are getting together and they're just hanging out for hours at a time. So really the primary question that I asked in all of the outreach thinking about spending time with men is where are men when they're not at home and they're not at work. And what I really quickly realized is that ends up being their hobbies. There have been people I've gotten to know at their business, primarily small business owners, um, where it's not their hobby time. But for most men, if they have a, a normal job, they work in an office or a factory or something like that, uh, when they're at work, you don't have a lot of opportunities. When they're at home, you don't have a lot of opportunities. So what are they doing when they're outside their house? And that has been easily hobbies, things they're interested in, whether it's uh, running, motorcycles, music, remote control cars, uh, you name it, there's uh, a million things that people do. The interesting thing for me, as I got to particularly Kumamoto, where we are now, uh, I bicycled a lot and I would bicycle around to, to visit people, also to run errands. And I got to thinking about them passing all these little bike shops. It's like, well, surely some of these are uh, owner operator, really small shops. And some of them you could stop and, and talk to the owner. So I did get to meet and develop uh, good friendships with some of owners of some of those small uh, bicycle shops. Had opportunities to share the gospel. One of them was really interesting because he also kind of sponsored a club through his bike shop. Uh, the people in the club got together once a week to ride and it was kind of a specialty club. They rode trials bicycles so they got together in a park and they would jump over benches and up and down stairs and all this crazy stuff which I couldn't do but they were very happy for me to go and hang out with them. After doing that um, for a while I eventually got a motorcycle here. I'd had a scooter before, a little 50cc moped but I got a a Yamaha SR400, a little bit bigger motorcycle, ride around a little more. And I realized I could do the same thing with motorcycle shops. There are a lot of small owner operators, motorcycle repair shops, custom shops, and I could go stop by those, 
uh, do things that I could do myself, but were pretty cheap, like an oil change. I might get to know somebody, said, hey, I'm gonna pay them for an oil change, maybe every other time, just to have an excuse to go by. Some of them I got to know, and they were, were very happy to have me come in and sit and talk to them while they worked on another motorcycle. So I didn't have to have an, an excuse. Um, as I got to know them, was able to go in, get to know them, build a relationship. Some of them, their wives were there, and they would maybe have coffee and take a break and sit down with you. Or other customers, there were some of the shops that really were run by outgoing people, put in little booths where people could sit and other customers could talk, or people would just stop by and say hello. And what I found out is a lot of the motorcycle shops did exactly what the bicycle shops did. They sponsored a, a maybe a monthly ride, had a little club that was made up primarily of customers of that motorcycle shop. So I was able to go on some of these monthly rides and that opened the door to a whole new range of people. And from there with motorcycles, I ended up going to some of the two and three day events where they have camping out in the mountains and have uh, anywhere from 400 to 3,000 people have gotten together in Kumoto for these events where they would have music and booths and food and people just hang out and take day trips into the mountains, different places and ride. I'm able to meet a lot of people like that, have opportunities to share the gospel, uh, meet some people in the Yakuza, a lot of fun stuff. So over the years, I've continued to look for activities like this to get to know and meet people. As my family grew and as our kids got older, they all picked up music, which my wife and I both enjoy music. Uh, she plays piano. I butcher a guitar and sing a little. We formed a family band and started doing mini concerts that we ourselves put on but also going to other events. We eventually got to the point where we had kind of worked ourselves into the music community in Kumoto and were invited to be part of a city festival and other music events around the city. So again, that's a very um, good activity to be part of for us because we were able to uh, meet a lot of people. Doing the music as a family meant we also met a lot of uh, women, children, other people that I wouldn't have met on my own. So Susan, I know, developed some good relationships with different ladies that we met, some that she met in other circumstances that liked music and were invited to come to musical events, some that we met at musical events and were invited into our life in other ways. So one of the questions is how do you go from, okay, here's a group of people, here are contacts. How do they go from contacts to people who you have an opportunity to share the gospel with? And I would say there are two answers to that, and both are needed to be complete. The first one is that as you get to know somebody new, if you're transparent and God really is at the center of your life, you can't hide that. So it's natural in conversation to have opportunities to share your testimony and the fact that you follow Jesus. Depending on someone's response to that kind of conversation, you might have an opportunity to share the gospel. You might have an opportunity to invite them into a Bible study. 
Um, lots of places it could go from there. Another side of that is the fact that you're continually trying to develop deeper relationships. Some of the people in any group are going to not be attracted to your personality or to you, particularly in a place like Japan. Some people just avoid foreigners. But there also are always some people who want to know more about you. They want to spend time together. And you can tell. Uh, they make it clear, hey, I'd like to hang out. You have opportunities with those people to build a friendship. And again, as you build a friendship, you have opportunities to share Jesus. One of the cool things about both of these aspects of building relationships and getting to know people is that they're very low pressure. They're not um, a high pressure sales pitch. You are literally just sharing your story. As a Christian, my story includes God. Who I am is based on what Jesus did. Why I do what I do is based on who God is making me, building me into the image of Christ. So it's impossible to avoid that. If that's true in your life, then sharing the gospel is not ever a hard thing. And at least in my experience, it's never been something that's been offensive to anybody else. have multiple men that I'm building relationships with now who have expressed clearly I'm not really interested in spiritual things. In spite of that, they still seek me out. They still want to hang out. They still want to do things together. And they're still not offended when time after time, as the conversation goes in certain directions, Christ is at the center of it. God is at the center of it. Everything from, hey, are you worried about the elections coming up? To, hey, Japan's a country with lots of natural disasters. Are you ever scared about that? Are you ever afraid? Um, are you worried about the economy? Or any kind of worry or fear question, I believe, should be interpreted as a, a question that is intended to ask you about the hope that you have. My hope is not in the economy, it's not in my president, uh, it's not in safety that the world can provide, or insurance, or any of those things. My hope is in God. I know from studying the Bible who He is. Not only do I know the facts about who He is, that He's just, that He's kind, that He's loving, that He's holy, I have learned to know Him through Jesus. What that means is that I trust Him. When He says He loves me, He wants what's best for me, He'll never leave me or forsake me, that He's working to make me the kind of person that he wants to fellowship with for eternity, I can trust that that's true. My hope is in his promises. So when someone asks me, are you afraid, are you worried, are you concerned? The answer is always, no, not really. Because I know God. 
I know he's doing something that's bigger than me. He doesn't promise me safety. He doesn't promise me tomorrow. But he promises me eternity. And he promised me, promises me that he's at work today. What that means is, the world, in all its craziness, offers frequent opportunities to have a spiritual conversation with people around me. Another question we get asked sometimes is about the Japanese church and the situation of the church today. Honestly, that's one of the harder questions because it's not doing really well. You know, the, the gospel has been in Japan for quite a while. There have been uh, Protestant missionaries in Japan since after World War II in fairly substantial numbers. And yet, less than 1% of the population claim to be Christian. Even more than that, the current situation is, uh, humanly speaking, we say it's, it's looking darker. We know that it's in God's hands and He is building His church. But from our perspective, as humans who don't have God's perspective, knowledge, wisdom, and exact details to how He's doing His work, we look at it and some of the facts are the Japanese church is getting older. Your average church uh, has predominantly older members, very few kids, and not a lot of uh, kind of the middle, young parents, middle age. The pastor quite often is, uh, I think the average is over 60 and maybe even over 70. I've seen statistics that say, just given the current situation and uh, assuming no change, that in, say, 15 years, half the churches will be without a pastor just because they've died or not able to continue. I know the number of pastors in training in Bible schools and seminaries uh, is very low. Definitely not enough to keep up with the need. Most of the mission boards have fewer members today than they did, uh, say, 30, 40 years ago. So from our perspective, as humans, we would say the situation is kind of bleak. But the wonderful thing is we don't have to go forward and rely on our perspective. We are able to trust that God will do what He promised. He will build His church in Japan. He will build His church. And it will include people um, from all over the world. How is he building his church? Well, different ways, different times, different places, and using different people. It's interesting, in the last several years, in our area, historically, there are not a lot of foreigners, but in the past several years, the number has increased. And right now, we have a bilingual Bible study, and it's consistently reaching hmm, seven or eight foreigners. So that's a new thing. We have a group of Filipinos who live close to our house. Our weekly Bible study on Sunday nights is attended by uh, Americans, Filipinos, and a, a young lady from Jamaica. We also have a men's discipleship study that has a guy from Scotland and a guy from Australia. So God is at work building His church in different ways. A lot of these have married Japanese here for the long haul, and maybe their kids will be the ones who are 
really prepared to go forward with the gospel in Japan. One of the questions we often get asked is what it's like to live in Japan as a, a foreigner, and isn't it just like America? They have all the modern conveniences. It should be easy to live there. And that's true to a large extent. It's very easy to live in Japan as far as finding your basic needs and finding food you can eat. Um, but there are several big differences that do make it challenging at times. Practically, one of the big differences that we're dealing with right now is it's in the middle of the winter. There's no central heating or air conditioning. So if you're not used to that, that makes life a lot more challenging. Now, I grew up that way, so we had a wood stove, and you wake up in your bedroom and there's no heat, you make a run for the wood stove to get dressed in the morning. You have a little electric heater or something in the, the bathroom, get a shower and warm it up enough not to freeze when you get out and dry off. Well, that's essentially the way we are here. None of our bedrooms have any heat. We do have a wood-burning stove. The last several years before that, most people use, uh, and we used, uh, kerosene. And I gotta tell you, it does not work anywhere near as good as the wood heat does. So with wood heat, we can heat our living room and the kitchen to a pretty decent level. Um, with kerosene, really, you have to have a kerosene heater in the room you wanna heat, which would mean a kerosene heater in the kitchen and in the living room. And really, even the living room, it doesn't quite keep up, and that's partly, you'd have to see it to understand, but there's a, it's really two rooms, and there's a sliding system of doors in the middle so you can close it off. And if you close it off and only use half of the living room, then you can heat that. It's probably a 10 by 15 room. You open it up like we do, have company, all that kind of stuff. It's really hard to heat that whole space. Um, part of the heating difficulty comes from the fact that there's no insulation uh, in our house. And a lot of the older houses didn't have any. I haven't lived in a newer one. I don't know how much better they might be, but it's hard to heat. There's gaps and air coming in and bugs and all that kind of stuff. So that's one of the things practically that can make life quite a bit different. Both my wife and my older daughter have had chillblains, which is a step before frostbite, and that's primarily from house, cold feet, cold tile in the bathroom. Um, that's just a reality here. It's fairly common, which you wouldn't really expect to have that from your house in America. There are differences in you know, cooking and different things. Most people don't have an oven here. If they do have, it's, it's a microwave slash convection oven, so it's smaller than what you're used to in America. It makes cooking somewhat different. You use propane to cook on rather than electric. Electricity is kind of expensive. But that's pretty easy to adjust to. There are lots of little things here that people sometimes get annoyed by. I know I had one missionary friend that said, Welcome to Japan, land of wonder. And what he meant is, I wonder why they do that. There are some simple things that just really don't make sense from the way we're used to doing things. As an example, you go to the bank or any place with a teller like that, you're very likely going to take a number, wait till the number's called, go to the front window, give them your information. If it's a deposit, give them the money, fill out a deposit slip, 
go back to your seat. They'll process it, deal with other people, call you up again later. And what you notice as you look through the, the window, the teller at the front very seldom processes your deposit in that case. They hand it to somebody else. I've seen three people handle a task like that here, where in America it would have been one. So it means you wait a little longer once you've gone up to the window here than you would be used to in the States. And you're going, I wonder why they do it that way. If those things bother you, and there's lots and lots of them, any kind of official city hall, bank, insurance, all that is quite a bit different. If that kind of thing bothers you over time, you're going to be annoyed and it kind of builds up. But in general, if you have patience and just take your time, understand that things are different, it's really not that hard to live here. Another question we get asked as missionaries is what do we do with our kids' schooling? And we have chosen a homeschool for multiple reasons. One, we do go back and forth between America and Japan occasionally. Not very often to America. We've only been back for about eight months in the last 10 years. But still, that interrupts school. So for consistency for the kids, um, homeschooling allows them to do the same thing in either country, no matter how long we're wherever. That's probably not the primary reason that we homeschool, though. Uh, my wife, Susan, was homeschooled. Her mom was one of the first 10 or 12 in their state to homeschool back 40 years ago. So she's very familiar with the benefits of homeschooling. And any negatives that you might see, uh, we've had opportunities to think about and consider how to overcome those. People often talk about the socialization, not spending enough time with kids. For us, that's never been an issue, partly because, um, I don't know, we're trying to raise our children to become mature adults, not to be comfortable children. One of the benefits of homeschooling and the socialization as we have done it is that our kids are very comfortable talking to adults. Since they're going to be adults, eventually, that's a good thing. Rather than being comfortable with kids and not knowing how to talk to adults and having to grow up once they leave home. Um, our kids are very mature and able to do that now. We've also looked for opportunities for them to be part of things uh, in the community. So all our kids do karate. Um, that's been a great outlet, both for meeting people, people their age, people older. It's also fulfilled some of the need for exercise, some kind of sport, if you will. Uh, they have all loved it. Well, okay, I take that back. <laughs> My youngest daughter, Melody, has not always loved it, but she has done it, and it's definitely been good for her. And then in addition, we do have other missionary kids here. They've been able to build relationships with them. And they've benefited from that over the years as well.
The second reason that we really homeschool is because the culture here is a culture without God. Particularly in the younger grades, when your children are very susceptible to peer pressure, they're learning to think, um, still as a child's in first, second grade, you're still working on discipline issues, helping them to understand right from wrong, how to relate to people, sending them to a school where most of the time 100% of both the students and the teachers are without God, they get nothing that's going to support what you're trying to teach them at home. And you've given away a big chunk of their day to the school. In any culture, I think that's a bad idea. For us, as a no-brainer, we're definitely not sending our kids to school and have the school make our job harder. So we really haven't had any real discipline problems once our kids got to be 9 or 10. Really, at 9 or 10, you're done disciplining actions and words. And we begin to, to work on and talk with them about attitudes. And that's a, you know, an ongoing battle even for us as adults to have the attitude that we need to have when it's time to do things we don't really want to do. But to be able to have that conversation and not be worrying about basic obedience and basic relationship skills uh, really has helped us to encourage our children to have, to build and develop their own spiritual life. One of the issues that has come about because of homeschooling, well, that's all in English, is that our kids have been behind in speaking Japanese compared to other missionary kids who've gone to a public school, or maybe compared to a church that has a lot more Japanese young people than we've ever had. But at the same time, um, Chloe is now 20, and she's pretty close to fluent in Japanese. She's still actively studying, learning kanji. She reads every day in Japanese. Um, in the long run, it hasn't worked out to be a negative. But it did mean they were a little slow getting started and really um, being comfortable in Japanese. Well, these are a few of the questions that we've had over the years. There are probably many, many others that I haven't thought of today and haven't had time to answer, but... Hi, if you have questions, let me know. We'd love to answer them. These walk and talk sessions are a chance for me to multitask, get some exercise, some time alone, and also to let you know a little more about uh, Japan, our life, missionaries, to talk about current events or anything that I would like to talk about or that you would like to hear about. So let me know. We would love to hear from you. Hopefully, eventually, I'll be able to figure out a way to get feedback and questions from people who might be interested and try to answer those questions on these Walk the Dog Wednesdays.